You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe. Hello, and welcome to the In Network podcast feature, Designing for Health. I'm Nordic's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. I recently sat down with Dr. Gary Kaplan, CEO Emeritus at Virginia Mason Franciscan Medical. Our discussion centered around Dr. Kaplan's journey to revolutionize care at Virginia Mason, how a car company inspired a complete redesign of the patient experience, and how a health system can learn and grow from organizational hurdles. Let's plug in. Dr. Gary Kaplan, thank you so much for appearing on the pod. It's really an honor to have you here. Great. It's my pleasure to be here with you, Craig. Thanks. So your, your history is that you're, a, you're an internal medicine specialist, and you were practicing in the Seattle area, uh, progressing up the ranks and ultimately to become the, the chief executive officer of Virginia Mason Franciscan Hospital or Health Center. Health system, Virginia Mason Franciscan Health is the name of the new system. But for my first 21 years as chief executive, I was the CEO of the Virginia Mason Health System. And then prior to my, what some people call retirement, we emerged and formed Virginia Mason Franciscan Health. Okay. And, and, and so what I think we're going to focus on today is um, something that you did when you took over uh, that really kind of revolutionized the way that Virginia Mason um, provided care in the in, in at your hospitals and in, in your in your clinics. So you you became the CEO in 2000. Is that right? That's correct. I've been a Virginia Mason really my entire career uh, after leaving the University of Michigan. Can you maybe paint that picture for us around the year 2000 when you took over? There were some issues that you needed to address or that you felt that needed to be addressed and, and hadn't been. Yeah, it was a, a very um, interesting time in the history of our organization. We um, were one of a small group of organizations that were founded by doctors from the Mayo Clinic, what I call the Mayo Clinic diaspora in the late teens and early 20s. Uh, a lot of uh, the Mayo Clinic physicians who were the first. Uh, as you know, the first group practice in the United States, they, I think, I jokingly say, decided they didn't want to live in Rochester, Minnesota in the wintertime. <laughs> and they uh, fanned out to form these group practices across the country to beautiful places like um, Cleveland, Ohio, Boston, uh, Massachusetts, New Orleans. And so Virginia Mason was one of those clinics like Geisinger, Oxner. Uh, Cleveland and others that were born of the uh, of the Mayo Clinic model, and we were a place that became a major referral center for the Pacific Northwest. We were the first group practice in the Pacific Northwest, and I came there in 1978 as an internal medicine intern, and really fell in love with this organization, the multi specialty group practice model, and never left. Uh, and so then I was fortunate. I was part of leadership for many, many years. Um, I was vice chairman of the medical center uh, from 1995 until the year 2000. And then the year 2000, I was chosen as the seventh CEO in now 103 years. Each of us has been a practicing clinician. And I was part of leadership when I became CEO, but 
it didn't take long before I realized that we really needed to to change, to change in in big way and in, in, in several uh, major ways. And that was hard because I was a product of the organization, product of the past. Um, but for me, it became how do you honor the traditions and the legacy, um, and then still lead large scale change. And uh, it was very interesting. It started with a question from our board. So here I was a new CEO, but part of the prior leadership structure. And the board asked us, who was, who was our customer? And like everybody in healthcare, I said, well, of course, it's the patient. But what happened next really kind of threw me for a loop because the board said, well, if that's the case, why do things look the way they do? And in fact, that began a deep dive on our processes, and we came to see that they were really designed all around us, the doctors, the nurses, the pharmacists, social workers, everybody working in healthcare. And this was long before, you know, people started talking about patient-centered care. It became the buzzword. Uh, the IOM had just put out their first report to air as human, uh, and uh, we began to see that we needed to change our ways and redesign care around our patients. And a great example I use is waiting rooms. I mean, what are waiting rooms? But places for patients to hurry up, be on time, and then wait for us. We spend millions of dollars still today in this country building these spaces so patients can wait. But what if we could actually create flow and eliminate waiting room? And it was, it was a great, it is one of hundreds of examples of how care was designed around us and not around our patients. So we got very clear that we wanted to be, to move from a, what I was proud at the time to call a physician-driven organization uh, to being a patient-driven organization. Uh, we then went through a strategic planning process led by the board, our leadership team, but really broad-based and involving our doctors, many from our communities, uh, many people from our community. And um, we set ourselves a vision, and that vision was really all around quality. And it was evolved to be the quality leader. Now, that, to most people, would sound like apple pie and motherhood, of course. It took us months to come to that because it was at a time when most health systems were looking for market share, dominance, um, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and we said, we're going to double down and uh, bet the farm on quality. And so that, that became our driving force. Let me ask you a question about kind of uh, um, pivoting from what you, um, what everyone would say in healthcare, which is we're, we're focused on the patient. Um, you, you said, well, actually, when you look around, or actually your board did, uh, it looks like you're really focused on the physician and the people that work here. Um, and that was, it sounds like back, back in the day, that was one of the major reasons that was a very important thing for, for Virginia Mason to do, right? Focus on the physician and the nurse in terms of recruiting and retention. Um, and, and so, you know, what, what happened when you kind of made that, that's that aha, when you had that aha moment and there was a switch and, um, hey, hey, doctor and nurse and therapist and pharmacist, we're going to we're going to switch things up here a little bit. It was actually um, very controversial in many ways, because, like I said, I was proud to 
talk about Virginia Mason as a physician-driven company. But we pivoted in a sense, um, saying that we can actually be a great place for physicians and nurses and team members by virtue of being a patient-driven organization, because that's why we all went into healthcare, healthcare to begin with. However, there were skeptics. I had doctors in my office. I had one doctor came into my office, pounded his fist on the table, and said, "If you don't, uh, if you don't flip what we called our strategic pyramid, which was our an iconic depiction of our strategic plan that had the patient at the very top, if you don't flip that and put the doctor back on top, I'm leaving." I showed him the door, and we lost a few people who were saying, "This isn't the place." I wanted to, or I came to, or that it's always been. And yet, soon, it became a rallying cry. The people were so proud that, um, and as I said, long before people were talking about patient-centeredness, um, that, that this was a place that was truly going to uh, be about the patient, and it became embedded in our decision rules. Whenever we had choices, we would always err on what was in the best interest of the patients. And that soon then became a magnet for attracting staff, attracting doctors. And when you couple that with what we haven't talked about yet, which is the Virginia Mason production system, uh, people gravitated to Virginia Mason because they wanted to be in a place where they were empowered to work on their work and to actually make had a way forward to make things better. And so that, that refocus of, of the patient, putting the patient at the top was the first step. The vision of becoming the quality leader uh, was a huge step forward for us. I remember Paul O'Neill, um, former Secretary of the Treasury, uh, who became very interested and CEO of Alcoa, he became very interested in healthcare in his later years, became a good friend, visited us many times. At the Institute for Healthcare Improvement annual meeting in 2002, he said, little Virginia Mason up in the Pacific Northwest has embarked on a bet the farm strategy around quality. And now I didn't know it was at the time that it was bet the farm. I knew it might have been bet the career, but I didn't know it was bet the farm. And it was also a, a focal point for people who really wanted to be serious about providing the very best uh, care excellence. The next thing that happened, which was very interesting, was I realized that in a physician-driven organization like Virginia Mason, we needed to re recast what I would call the deal between the doctors and the organization. Uh, that the old compact which was entitlement, protection, and autonomy, was a really sweet deal. And that was the deal when I joined Virginia Mason. I was entitled to patients. I was protected by the business leaders and the physician leaders like I became. And I was autonomous. Nobody could tell me what to do. I was a doctor, and only I, only I knew what was best for my patients. So we embarked in 2001 on a process of putting together a new compact between our doctors and the organization. What did every doctor have every right to expect from the organization? What did the organization have every right to expect from its doctors? And in fact, 
that compact took a year and touched every doctor in the organization and is alive and well even today, over 20 years later. But that was foundational. So, and that allowed us, allowed us to even consider introducing a management system that was all about manufacturing that had that had never been done before in healthcare. So we had a vision, a new vision. We redesigned care around our patients. We were focused on becoming a quality leader. We had a new compact with our doctors. And soon thereafter, by the way, our leaders and even our board, they wanted a new compact. And then it was, how are we going to possibly do this? And I personally went looking at the great health systems in the United States, and nobody had a management system. And that's when we heard from Boeing what was going on there. And we began to explore the Toyota production system. And uh, we can talk more if you'd like about it. That became our management system and is still today our management system. And we're sharing that those learnings around the world. So, Dr. Kaplan, you were looking for a, a management system. You went to the um, ends of the earth, or at least the ends of the uh, U.S., looking at great healthcare systems and how they managed the work that they were doing. Uh, but ultimately, um, you landed on uh, on a place I think most of us would would never guess in a million years. It was uh, the Toyota Motor Company uh, yes. or Toyota Car Company. And so, how how did you how did you kind of um, find out what they were doing and and um and then figure out that you wanted to learn a lot more about it. Well, we we um went exploring, you know, as I said, for a management system, didn't find it in healthcare, and very serendipitously heard about Boeing's work with the Toyota production system, where they were, you know, Boeing being here in Seattle, just down the street, uh, they actually uh went from uh, taking 21 days to build a 737 uh, to 11 days. And they build it, it's ironic today with some of the, the challenges they're facing as a company, but this was back, uh, you know, in the 90s, and they were building planes uh, better, higher quality, safer, uh, faster, and at lower cost. And uh, we said, wow. Maybe there's something here for healthcare, and we because that was what we needed. We needed higher quality, safer care, but we also had cost challenges even then, and as we do today. And so we began to explore it. We dabbled, went to Boeing, we visited, we dabbled in the production system, uh, did a couple projects, studied it, and in December of 2001, we took the entire management, not management team, but the executive team about 30 people, and we went to a company called Wiremole in Hartford, Connecticut. And they were one of the leading so-called lean companies in the United States. And it kind of blew us away. These frontline blue-collar factory workers were saying, finally, people care what I think. I, have, I had um, solutions to some of the challenges, but had no way to bring them to the fore. And they were empowered. They were on fire. They became a great company. And we came home saying, you know, this has really got, there's something here. And the Boeing people said, well, look, if this were a new medical procedure, you would go to the source. You would go to the place that 
this was developed and you should go to Japan. And that's when we decided to go. And I said to the entire executive team, if you want to be on this team, you're going to come with us to Japan. I had never been there. I had no idea what to expect. Um, and that was, that was a transformative two weeks where we worked in the factory. Um, and actually, I just got back from helping to lead our 20th trip with doctors, nurses, frontline team members, working to practice the tools that we had been learning about and then bring them back and apply them to taking care of patients. And um, it was quite remarkable. So the, the Toyota production system is, I think, what we're talking about. And, and um, you, you took your entire executive team, flew them first to the other side of the country and then to the other side of the world. Um, and, and what did you end up with? You ended up with the, the Virginia Mason uh, production system, right? VMPS. And, and how, how, did, how long did it take to kind of, um, till, you, till you felt like, hey, we really do have something that we can put a name on? Was that a year? Was that two years? How did that process go? Uh, well, we came back from Japan and in our last team meeting in Japan, uh, we collectively made the decision that this was going to be our management system. This was how we were going to run the company. And so we didn't delay. We came home and began to put in place the kinds of things we would need to do, particularly the training that was required. And particularly, and first and foremost, we actually put in place what Toyota is famous for in their stop the line uh, approach to patient safety, or to, to, uh, we applied it to patient safety. We came home and said, we want to take care of our patients and do for our patients at least what Toyota is doing for cars. And so we began almost immediately uh, to put this in place. You know, came home, people thought we had lost our minds. Uh, you know, we started talking about standard work, which today is the buzzword, you know, we need to standardize non-value-added variation. In those days, I remember standing up in our auditorium in front of all of our doctors and saying, we need standard work so that we can eliminate a variation that adds no value and make care safer and, and build, eliminate the waste that care is filled with. And people said, standard work, that's standard mediocrity, um, you know, cookbook medicine, uh, stifle innovation. And actually, nothing could be further from the truth. And just a few years ago, we had a uh, professional staff meeting, which we have every month. And the theme was from our doctors, we need more standard work and we need it now um, because it really did make care better. It made it easier to do the things we all want to do for our patients when you can take the waste out of processes. So, you know, it took two or three years before we began to reach a tipping point. Uh, some people said, this is not for me. I jokingly was asked at one point how many people left. And uh, that wasn't a joke. It was a serious question. But what I, you know, I got, I was a little bit said, not enough. But Frankly, what I meant by that was, you know, I spent a lot of time. These were my friends, my colleagues, my mentors, and I wanted to bring them along. And it wasn't until 
I realized that not everybody could come, that we were able to really accelerate because, um, you know, I wanted everybody to, to buy in and to feel comfortable, but not everybody could. And that's okay. You know, and people had to go their separate ways. Uh, but as I said, today, it's the way work is done. It's been that way now for almost 20 years and over 20 years. And, and there's tremendous alignment and it's become a magnet for people. Well, that's, that's great. Let's talk about the, that first thing that you mentioned to stop the line. And, and so well, what you had mentioned, I think one of the things you saw in Japan at Toyota was the ability for almost anyone working in the factory line on the production line to identify a problem that they could not resolve um, themselves. And they could pull a cord and literally stop the production for the entire factory um, until that thing gets resolved because they didn't, they were taking quality that seriously. How did you, how, um, well, well, healthcare might be kind of a factory. There's, there's not a beginning and an end for, for uh, uh, that's easily identified. How did you apply the, those principles? Yeah, I think that what we saw there, which was really amazing to most of us, was that here was a, were blue-collar factory workers, every single one of which empowered to shut down the factory. That in and of itself uh, was an eye-opener. Um, it wasn't after it got... Um, a, a, a car got through the assembly line that they inspected and find the problem, but that they would re really actually stop it, fix the problem rather than pass the defect to the next operator. What do we do in healthcare traditionally? Retrospective quality assurance. You know, a month after the fact, the QA committee uh, says, oh, how many people were readmitted within, you know, 10 days of discharge? And we find the reason. It's usually a systems issue, not a person issue. We fix the system. But how many more people have we harmed by delay and retrospective quality assurance? And so we said, we want real-time quality assurance. So we set up a system where we asked every single team member to be a patient safety inspector. And that meant that every single team member not only was empowered to report a defect, an error, a near miss, or frankly, anything that concerned them, but they were expected to. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody embraced that or believed it right away. We called it a PSA system, patient safety alert system. And um, there were, you know, people used it as a verb. They would say things like, you're not going to PSA me, are you? Or you're not going to report me. And it became, you know, there's, that's very much part of the fabric and the culture of medicine, you know, is, is peer protection, peer review. We will do, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the various types of, of uh, quality meetings under, under a cloak of secrecy. Um, but we started celebrating that, you know, people that reported these defects were heroes because they were basically saying, you know, this is, I'm concerned about this. It may lead to nothing. And the commitment from management was just like the supervisors in at Toyota. When someone pulled that cord, 
the line stopped and the supervisors converged to help the worker fix the problem, uh, we said we will respond 24 hours a day, seven days a week to your concerns as staff members. And, uh, and people didn't believe that either. And then it started to happen. And suddenly people said, wow, they're serious. They mean it. And um, what that led to was Virginia Mason becoming, in many ways, the safest hospital in the United States. But it wasn't until uh, tragedy struck that we really um, realized what it was going to take to truly change the culture and to truly be focused on creating um, what I call a perfect patient experience or what some people call zero defects. And that's when Mary McClinton came to us uh, for a tertiary procedure, but one that uh, we do every week at Virginia Mason, and we failed her. She died of a preventable medical error. When we realized what happened, a patient safety alert was called. We um, took steps to ensure that what occurred uh, happened to Mary would never happen again, and we went public, which until that time had never been done before, with one exception. Betsy Lehman, who was a Boston Globe reporter who died from a chemotherapy overdose at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And so we went public. We were fried in the media. We were on Good Morning America. I got letters from Europe saying you should be put out of business. You don't deserve, you killed that woman. And it was the saddest time in our history, but I knew we had done the right thing when one of our team members came forward a couple weeks later and she said, Dr. Kaplan, the same exact thing happened at X hospital down the street and was swept under the rug. And if that had been put out into the public domain, maybe Mary McClinton would have lived. So from that point on, you know, at that point, we said, we're only going to have one goal in this medical center, to keep our patients safe and free from avoidable injury and, and harm. And for the next three years, we had only one organizational goal, solely focused on patient safety. And it accelerated the development of uh, VMPS and, uh, and the cultural evolution that led to us proudly being named top hospital of the decade um, by leapfrog so can let's let's dig in a little deeper on on what happened to mary mcclinton because i think it's it's uh, um, uh, obviously sad but um very instructive um and and one of the things that you had said before uh, a little earlier is that you identified a problem but it was not an individual problem it was a system problem and I think that doesn't get enough attention. Uh, a lot of times we look at the last person who kind of touched the patient. And we said, well, this is, this is their fault. And, and they're the ones that get um, uh, named and shamed and often lose their job and maybe even their license to practice, um, even when it's a system problem. So, so as I understand it, um, Mary came in for a, uh, a, an operation. And, and uh, something happened in the OR that, that wasn't identified until, until days, hours to days later. Can you, can you kind of give us that story? Yeah. Mary came in for an interventional radiology procedure, cerebrovascular 
interventional procedure. And um, what happened was the saline that was injected uh, or presumed to be saline turned out to be another clear and colorless, colorless fluid um, that was chlorhexidine. And um, that was the defect. That's what happened. Uh, it was lack of labeling. And this was at a time when um, it was, you know, this wasn't realized as a potential uh, error. And it was quite remarkable. And, uh, you know, very sad. And, and, but it was that, you know, the, the operator was handed the syringe to flush the line and it had, just, it had been drawn up from a beaker, clear and colorless fluid. And it was a mistake uh, that, that led to, to Mary's uh, injury and subsequent death. Labeling was part of the systems issue. Uh, recognizing the clear colorless fluids are defect prone situation waiting to happen. They don't even make the stuff anymore so that you can make that error. There, the, the chlorhexidine is put into swabs. Um, so it's, so th those were the systems issues that were identified. And when we went public, you know, health systems across the country began to put in place changes to prevent this from ever happening as remotely possible, you know, as, as, as rare an occurrence that it might be. So, yeah, systems issues, I think your point is well taken, even today. And I'm very involved, uh, as you may know, in the patient safety world. And we have not yet gotten to this uh, no blame kind of culture that we need to not stop focusing on people and focus on systems that have occurred. We still have scapegoats. We still have people being punished. And uh, we don't have enough of what uh, is called just culture where we um, understand at a deep level human error, we understand at-risk behavior, and then we also understand reckless behavior. Um, and where we can find, see reckless behavior, we have to deal with that. But we also have to recognize that human error occurs every day and that we need to find ways to mistake-proof. In Japanese, it's called pokeyoke to mistake-proof our processes so that you can't possibly make the mistake. And there are actually many, many opportunities in healthcare to truly mistake-proof processes. And so we've learned a lot about those things. But unfortunately, while the, the conversation is evolving in the, in the profession and in the industry, uh, far too many people are still uh, working in environments where blame is the norm and the result of that then is that um, a lot of the concerns go underground. We've had hundreds of thousands of patient safety alerts at Virginia Mason because people know that's what's expected of them, and you can't improve what you don't know about. You can't mistake-proof what you don't know about. And so rather than drive that underground and continue to, to propagate errors and, and, and waste-filled processes, I think more transparency uh, is clearly required and more focus on creating just cultures within our healthcare institutions. Yeah, I'm fascinated by, um, you know, that design principle of making things error proof. And, and this uh, uh, was a really great example, taking that clear liquid and um, 
changing it so that it's no longer a liquid. It's actually now a, a swab um, and, you know, putting the chlorhexidine on a swab. That's now it's now impossible to to confuse that. And, and you've taken that, you know, the that that design um, is so much more more uh, it's safer. It's more usable. It's more obvious. And and uh, instead of what would normally have happened, I think uh, and still would often happen is that the person that drew up the the uh, the liquid and and, and then um, instilled it. Uh, that person would normally be the one that was blamed, and we wouldn't say anything about system. Um, and and to me, like that's the that's the the flag that that you're waving. Right. And I'm so I'm I'm so glad you waved it uh, 20 years ago, and are are still waving it today. And while we talk about systems, just to step back for a minute, one of the first steps in putting in place the Virginia Mason production system or TPS, Toyota production system, is a deep understanding of one of the processes. Now, I used to think I understood my work, but it wasn't until I asked somebody to time me over the course of a day that I realized I was spending an hour and a half every day looking for things. I thought I had a steel trap filing system, and, and, but I was wasting my time. And so when we came home from Japan that first trip, we asked every single major area of the medical center to map out a value stream map and understand their processes. And when you do that, that's where you begin to see the waste. You begin to see the interconnectedness of the systems of how uh, the silos that we've traditionally built in healthcare um, are not how patients access our care. They go across those silos um, and understanding the value stream of care through the lens of patients. And, um, and that step really puts some, you know, meat specificity to the notion of, well, it's a systems issue, which some people think when you say that you're just trying to get out of blaming somebody. But really what you're trying to do is actually get to the root cause and the core of what's causing it. So we have a deep I think, understanding of our processes. Um, and that can lead to all kinds of things to improve processes, improve throughput, eliminate bottlenecks, and I'd say most importantly, make care safer and higher quality. One of your colleagues um, wrote, uh, or a couple of your colleagues, I think, wrote a, an article in the Joint Commission Journal um, talking about the, the why patient safety alerts, as, as you've called them, the system that you've created, the of uh, even made a verb of PSAing, um, why it works, how it works, and the four bullet points that I think uh, they they called out was one. And you've talked about this: executive leadership is essential. Uh, from the CEO, I think you were only two or three as the CEO. You were only two or three steps away from um, you know from being called to action for for a PSA. Uh, Another thing, another one of the essentials was making it easy to report. And I see a lot of healthcare systems really not jump on this. Uh, you know, if, if someone sees something, can they uh, send a message? Well, sure. You know, you just have to go to the website and then click five different places. And then you have to fill out all of these required boxes. And so you're not really incentivizing folks to tell you about things. And then hence, you're, you shouldn't be shocked when you don't get those reports. Exactly. Uh, so That's right. how, system's how, perfectly designed to get the results it gets. Exactly <laughs> right. Uh, um, I, I 
regularly find find folks who are like, well, they could just email. Um, we made it easy to email, and I'm like, well, you know, most clinicians or, or folks in operations are spending their day in in a specific system, like the electronic health record, or or somewhere else, and they're they're not going to these other places, and so you're not going to get these updates, uh, or uh, you know, even if whether they're safety or any other types of um, of uh, you know recommendations. And finally, um, having to once you identify a problem, fixing it, right? And and that's again where a lot of folks. Uh, um, I can imagine with uh, with Mary McClinton uh, a fix that some some other healthcare systems might have made was to get rid of the person that made that mistake and problem solved. Um, not that's not not the fix. And so I think there's it sounds pretty easy um, when I'm listening to you, but it's it's certainly not. It, it was a lot of work and a lot of culture change. Right, and and I think that's right, and uh, that. Point number one about the executive presence, and it wasn't about me, it was about our team. We had a very um, aligned executive team, and, you know, which then created an aligned frontline management team. And, you know, I used to tell my direct reports, we'll go over your list in my office uh, for 20 minutes, and then we're going somewhere. We're going to the ICU, to the, to, to the OR, to, to the laboratory. We're going to go where the where the action is, and all of us made executive rounds um, really almost every day. And many of the leadership um, meetings, I personally every Tuesday morning at seven a.m. led stand up, where the improvement uh, work of the week was reviewed. I asked you know pointed questions. Uh, we tried to have some teachable moments. But the real, the real intent was to send the signal that this is our work too. When a lot of CEOs were, you know, looking at M and A or new facility development, which you know I had to do philanthropy, I had to do all that stuff. But you had to be visible, and you had to walk the talk, and you had to stay focused on the vision. And I think that was really critical to uh, the culture evolving in the way it did. I'm I'm fascinated by some of the stories I've heard uh, um, when you brought some of the the Toyota production system and and other folks from other industries kind of brought them back to to help you from time to time to offer their perspective. They knew nothing about healthcare. I was reading in in um, a book that we'll make sure to put in our our uh, notes for this episode, Transforming Healthcare, uh, about how you how you made some of these changes and. There was one anecdote about someone explaining a waiting room, as you referenced a little earlier, like, oh, this is the waiting room. And, and, um, and the, the person um, kept asking, well, why is there a waiting room? And, and just kept, whatever the response was, just kept getting to the whys and ultimately said, aren't you ashamed? Uh, aren't you ashamed that your system is not good enough that uh, you are, as again, as you referenced earlier, that you've got patients um, waiting for you? even though um, they've done everything that you've asked them to do. That perspective, from that outside perspective seems amazing because that's not something you or I would ever, I, I think I, let's all speak for myself, I would never have thought of that in that way. Yeah, and I, th I think that um, uh, you referenced Sensei Nakao. Uh, Mr. Nakao is one of only two living students of Taichi Ono. Taichi Ono uh, was the founder and inventor of the Toyota production system. And he had these six students, and, and Nakao was one of them. 
And he really adopted us as his healthcare client. I actually personally became his physician for a period of time. And even today, we have the senseis from Japan come to Virginia Mason. They keep us honest. They keep us from getting overwhelmed by our own press clippings and ask questions like that. I mean, I remember, um, and and their appreciative inquiry, um, sensei-like approach to learning is fascinating. And we we had uh, um, early on, one of our leaders was talking about a sterilization process that she was trying to improve. And she said, you know, I just don't understand exactly how the autoclave works. And so Sensei Nakao said to her, well, get in the autoclave. And, you know, first of all, the autoclave is not big enough for a person, of course. And um, But what he was really saying is, don't ask me, ask the machine. If we're on the assembly line at Hitachi Air Conditioning and, um, and, and somebody says, I don't get how that machine works, the senseis will say, go ask the machine. And they're basically saying, big eyes, big ears, small mouth, and um, use your powers uh, of observation and listening. And, and these are uh, important skills. So we still find it valuable to bring in outside uh, expertise. Today, people are coming from all over the world to Virginia Mason, just like we went to Japan. And, and we say, uh, you know, we've got to continue to grow and learn or we have nothing to really teach. Um, so it's, it's been an interesting process now over 21 years. Uh, a, a similar application um, of taking kind of a, the, the, the idea of a defect in care and, and applying that from, from a defect in production to, to healthcare um, that I thought was very interesting that I, that I read about uh, was a call light. On the inpatient side, right? So, if a if a patient, for those who have never been in the hospital, if or if a patient needs something and they're in bed, they can press a button and it will uh, either call their nurse or call a a, a clerk who can uh, try to address that. And that um, this person at Virginia Mason was saying, we see that as a defect. If you had to click that button and call us, then we didn't. Um, we're being reactive, and we don't want to be reactive. We want to be proactive whenever possible. So. If you're calling us because you need to use the restroom, did when was the last time we asked you if you needed to do the rest? Go to the restroom. Um, you know, can we have made that better? And again, it's just a very different way of looking at things. Yeah, I think that's right. What you're what you're describing is the result of a, a rapid cycle improvement, rapid process improvement workshop that our acute care inpatient nurses uh, did themselves. They said, you know, we're uh, spending the majority of our time, not at the bedside. We don't want the new hospital floor to have nursing stations where we can go and hang out with our fellow nurses. We want to be at the bedside. And so they designed cellular nursing, where basically bed assignment was based on geographic design. And the uh, and uh, patients did a lot of their work. I mean, the nurses did a lot of their work inside the patient rooms. And so the there was never need to call, push the call button because historically in healthcare, you know, you're visiting your family member in the hospital, that IV pump starts beeping, you can't get it to shut off. Um, I know I, being a doctor, I guess I felt like I could do it, but I'd pull the plug to get the thing to shut off um, because nobody responded to the nurse button, the call light button, um, or it took so long. 
So if you can eliminate that by having the physical presence, um, care gets better. Patients' needs are met uh, more quickly. And I think as importantly, um, the work is much more rewarding to the nurses and to the patient care technicians who are spending their time at the bedside, which is why they went into healthcare to begin with. Typically, we, off, we often end these podcasts with me asking you, are there, are there things, are there one or two things in your life that are so well designed um, that they're notable or they bring you joy? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, one of the things, we, we built a home in Seattle about 14 years ago, and it's got a large cathedral ceiling and re- radiant heat in the floor. And um, nobody, uh, you know, for many years, Seattle was the uh, venue with the lowest penetration of air conditioning in the country because it never got hot enough. But as we know, with climate change, uh, things are changing. And we've actually had days in the hundreds here. And so my wife and I decided that we were going to get the air conditioning, but because we don't have ducts in our house, we had to get these units um, that you put on the wall. And what was a fabulous byproduct is they also produce heat. And so while we got them so that we would have air conditioning in the summer, it turns out that our heating system became much more efficient and much more um, comfortable since we put these units in place. And so they're de- I didn't realize that they were designed to produce both heat and air conditioning. And um, it's just something I'm actually appreciating today because we had a power failure last night, as I mentioned to you earlier, and it uh, was colder than I had hoped it would be when I got home from the Michigan victory in the national championship game uh, last night. Oh, wait, was there a football game? You um, know there was. And, uh, I, I, and I was in an interesting position being a Seattleite for 46 years with the University of Washington a couple miles from my house. But I bleed blue. And um, it was a wonderful experience. Thank you for sharing that. And I will send out my um, you know, positive energy to you that you're safe living in Seattle um, and being a Michigan fan for the next year. Because I... Uh, I doubt that you'll mention to anyone in Seattle uh, that you're uh, you bleed blue and um, and that you're a Michigan fan. That probably will never come up. I'm just guessing. Oh, it will. Oh, it really? Will. Okay. That plane, oh, ride home, that plane ride ride home last night was very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, go blue. I will say that. Uh, and, Thank uh, you. Um, that's the state of my birth. So I. I I feel for the uh, the state institution. Yes. Again, thank you for your your time and and sharing My your pleasure. lessons with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more on Dr. Kaplan and his work, check out the book Transforming Healthcare: Virginia Mason Medical Center's Pursuit of the Perfect Patient Experience by Charles Kenny. A link is in our show notes. Check back for more episodes of Designing for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well. 